What's up, crew? Welcome to Filming in Progress, the show that takes you backstage into the world of local businesses and the people who make them shine. Thanks for doing this today. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to it. Um, take me back. Who is Jessica Jansen? Take you back. August 7th, 1984, Grace Hospital, Winnipeg, Manitoba, 7-Eleven. I come in like a wrecking ball, basically. Um, I mean, born and raised in Winnipeg, Manitoba, just outside my parents. And now my little brother, they farm there. They've been farming there since 1978. I was born in 84. Had what I would call a fairly traditional, healthy life being born and raised in the family uh, born and raised on the farm I think what's funny for me is I always joke like we were so hard done by and I just think I think that my parents gave us really good um, tools and they had really good values and because we were a farming family you like just all have to pitch in I got the easy street because I'm the only girl and I went to school in the city I was a cheerleading coach I cheerleaded I played volleyball like kind of test the waters at everything. In grade 12, I was most likely um, voted to be a motivational speaker. I'm like trying to find that piece of material because I think it's hilarious with what I do now. And then I moved to Calgary 17 years ago in 2006 with basically $300 to my name, no plan, no like, this is what I'm gonna go do. I just wanted something new. And so that has led me into this incredible life. Some of it I've worked really hard for, some of it I think came accidentally. And I've built a life by design that I absolutely love. I don't know, like, what are you looking for out of that? I think we've all seen, you know, what you've worked for. <laughs> what came accidentally? I, I, I would say the charity component. And I would say we have worked our ass off for where we've gotten to. But I would say it was never part of the dream. Like when I would dream about the life that I would have, it wasn't that I dreamt of having a one day charity. I've always dreamt and wanted to and have always done good hosted fundraisers help families do stuff like that but after the position that our family was in and the loss of our son it was like oh like we can do something with impact and when we started going it was like people are listening and responding so it was never my plans to be like i'm going to start a charity and a nonprofit, and it's going to be amazing that for sure was accidental becoming a mom as early as i did I was 30, so it's not like I was like 20 and, you know, not married. I was married, but we were told by doctors, not going to probably get pregnant. Um, you know, this could take a couple of years. And my husband and I looked at each other and we're pregnant the next month. And that's not the majority of people's cases. Had our daughter three months later, looked at each other again. We literally joke. We're like, it was either the time in Edmonton or the time on the kitchen stool. Like those are the two times. And that's when our son was conceived. And so having kids that closely, accidental, not planned, not at all part of how we've unfolded our lives. And then I always wanted to be a CEO of a large company. And I have had a desire to be my own boss and business owner, but I think I pictured it differently and now doing what I do I've always wanted to be a speaker but I didn't picture it this way and so I wouldn't I don't know if it's accidental or if it's just unfolded totally different than I expected right uh, as we mentioned a little bit off camera I've I've been fortunate enough to know you for a long, a long time. time like 10 8 10 years I think yeah, yeah yeah which is super cool because the whole point of this is to ask those tough questions and um I, I've been I've been curious to know for a long time. You know, you you talk about um, 
financial hardship, farm girl, mm. bullying, these things that, you know, a, a large portion of your story comes after all these things. Mm -hmm. What did your first little bit in Calgary look like after coming from Manitoba? I'm, I'm going to reverse and go even further back. So I, I've shared this a little bit, but I think, I not I think, I know that everything has led me to who I am today and to have the heart to be tuned in, to be aware, hypersensitive towards certain things. So I got bullied. It started in elementary school and I befriended a new girl. My mom was my bus driver. So she had two routes, the early morning and the late morning. And we were always on the late morning. But that year it was like grade six. I was so stoked. And my mom was like, oh, you know, I'll put you on the early route. I was like, you always wanted to be on the early route because you got to play more at the playground, whatever. So my mom, I remember her opening the door and she goes, Jess, there's a new girl. Please make her feel welcome. So I said, okay. So I go back and I don't sit with all of my like close friends and I sit with the new girl. And that kind of flipped the script and um, you know, we all kind of became friends, but as you do figuring out life, you know, in the group, out of the group, in the group, out of the group. But the group turned against me and it was like rotten vegetables in my gym bag. Then it was rotten apples. I remember, I can still like picture the sound when I would put my feet and I had these cool brown boots that I thought it was just so cool that I had these brown boots um, to change into, you know, for outdoor indoor shoes. I remember putting my feet and these mushy, disgusting apples just smushed everywhere. And I remember I, it was the dead of winter. I took my feet out of there and I started running to chase this boy, Sean, and he was faster than me. And I couldn't ever catch him, but I was so mad and I was so hurt. And I eventually moved schools because I would cry myself to sleep. Like they pulled out my pants in gym class. Like who does that? And it was all these little incidences to like lead me up to this point of, okay, I'm going to switch schools again, you know, befriend some of the new kids. Again, I get bullied again, not included girl group are like, oh, we don't have room for you. And it was like, what? We're like, oh, sorry, only this many people in the car. My mom said I could only have this many people. And those incidences, I think, really tuned my heart into making sure that everyone feels included or that they're welcomed or that there's a seat at the table. And so those moments of hurt, I think, also fueled something me in me, like this drive to prove to people that I was worthy, that I'd have a seat at the table, and just that I'd be, like, part of it, I think, was just like a fuck you to them. Like, you, like, they always say, like, be friends with the nerd in the class because he's probably going to end up being your boss one day. I was kind of going to be like fuck you all, like watch me do my thing and accomplish my dreams and not be stuck in this like hum -ho life where we're just like, man, we don't do anything and accept mediocrity, mediocrity. And so that fueled me, I think, to tune into certain things, which when I moved to Calgary allowed me to turn into certain people's needs of things that I felt needed to be changed. And I think when we talk about the hardships, I've chosen a very unconventional path um, and I've been reckless, which as an entrepreneur, I think you need a certain percentage of recklessness, of being relentless, of being willing and brave to try anything. But it also has led to me going at such a fast pace that I'm now in year six, seven of my own business of trying to put in solid foundations so that I don't crumble and fall. And I'm pretty good about juggling and keeping things up in the air and doing it all and trying to make sure that, you know, you've got this thing. But I also know that I won't be able to scale and go to where I dream of going if I don't fix that stuff. And I think this moving to Calgary with $300 in my bank account, being an entrepreneur, I've just had this grit and this grind to keep going. Like quitting is not an option. I definitely think about it often, but I know it's not an option because I 
have the end in mind and like this journey and I really am enjoying it. It's just not as easy as we all make it out to seem. 100%. Yeah. Um, so you came to Calgary with the, you know, you've experienced this stuff pre. You came, come with a new attitude that you, you decide you want to help people. What was the first time you, you, you feel like you got through to help somebody? I would probably go through Sean and Shnea, and I mean, I have talked about this, but I remember sitting, I moved to Calgary and I remember sitting on my front porch, 362 Panamount Boulevard. We had this duplex and I remember sitting on my front porch and there was a hill up to the house. I'm from Manitoba, flat as like bald prairies. I was like, wow, I live in a house, in a house that has a hill leading up to it. Like it was just such a novelty for me. And I remember sitting on this front porch kind of looking down that hill and I remember being like, I can be absolutely anything. No one knows me here for anything. There wasn't like, I think we often paint ourselves in a box and then we stay within the box because when you start doing things differently, people will question you and then why would you do that? Or like, we don't do that or we've always done it this way so we're gonna keep doing it that way. And I think when you take big leaps and risks like moving here with no plan in place, that was the leaps and risks. And I think the very first time that that was, I would say, most significant was I was at church a week earlier, I had said, and I know you you know this part of my story, I said, I would never want to work with handicapped kids. They disgust me. I was in between jobs making pros and cons list. And I said those words out of my mouth. And a week later, God was like, we're going to give you like, <laughs> I have a sense of humor and you will meet this family. And I just felt this complete nudge, like I had to do something to help this family because I was I was capable, I had free time. And that's when I think I shifted and what I learned from that experience was such a simple gesture of going up to someone and saying, hey, you have no idea who I am. I don't actually have this thought out or exactly what you need, but I'd like to offer my services. Could I do, like I said, I can babysit for you or I can scrub your toilets. That was my two options. Like, I don't know, people need their bathrooms cleaned. And they literally were like, can you start tomorrow? And that was the first time that shifted where I was like, oh, it doesn't have to be this big grandioso thing. You can just go up to someone and say, can I scrub your toilets or babysit your kids? And that has been one of the most significant decisions. And I say it's significant because I think what it actually taught me was the confidence to trust the nudge, to trust that like small voice, the like thing that's in your gut that's tugging you somewhere. But I think often we don't follow through because we don't know what the result's gonna be, so we're scared, or it's uncomfortable, or it's like the fear of the unknown. But that, I think, was the ripple effect of like, just go with your gut, like take a step, even if you don't know the outcome, even if this family laughs in your face, or even if they say no. And I think that's what snowballed my confidence, just to keep showing up which has been served me well in business and in our charity. And it led me to my husband, so yeah, boom. Boom, all the things. Yeah. Um, when, you, when you experience something like that for the first time that kind of like is a profound experience and it makes you wanna keep doing that, um, and then you continue to, let's fast forward, you know, five, 10 years, um, you're, you know you're still doing it for the right reasons, you know, you know um, but is there anything that like every day, you know, we talked about this earlier, you question yourself every day. Am I doing the right thing? Am I doing it for the right reasons? Am I still helping people? What's, what's the one thing that keeps you going? I, I would say it's just knowing that I can make a difference. Like I, I have all of the skills to do it, so why wouldn't I? I had a friend that started a charity and she's like, oh my gosh, there's only like 20 people signed up. I was like, don't mess up what I'm producing now with where you are. I'm like, I'm seven years in, and I'm like, my very first fundraiser, 
13 people showed up, $640 was raised. I felt like a complete loser because there was more empty seats than there was filled seats and I had no idea how. And so I think this notion of like, there's so much work to be done and I wanna fix and solve all of it, but if I just focus on this single thing, then that can be my impact in making the world a better place. And so it's the pain of knowing that there's a better way to do things and that I have the skill set to fix it, why wouldn't I do it? Like, what's stopping me from? And so that, I think, is the driving force of being like, I am capable, I do have a skill set, and I can have impact, so just go do it. And it's messy and it's chaotic and it's affected my marriage and our family and our bank account and all of the things, but it's like, it's making a difference, so keep going. And we've seen the ripple effect of that. High-performing people, uh, it, it's lonely. Mm. Do you ever experience that? Yeah, I'm not this where I'm gonna cry. Yeah, I'm actually in a season right now of like a lot of shifted and um, some really like deep, meaningful relationships have fallen, um, fallen away and that sucks. And the way that I operate, the pace in which I operate, um, how I show up and do things, my intensity can really scare people off, can really intimidate people. And then like because of that intensity, I think I, I know, not I think, I know I'm not everyone's flavor. Like I know everyone's not gonna be like, yeah, this is it, just go for it. Like people are like, what are you doing? Or it's so intense that they don't even know how to infiltrate themselves. And so I have such big goals and dreams, which I love, but it also scares people off and can put people off. And so I'm in this season where some of my deepest, closest friendships, I don't know if they faded away or fell away. Some of it I'm still working through and I don't even know I'm sharing this, but it's been hard in terms of going like, what did I do? And questioning like, man, if I chose something different or I chose a more traditional life would some of these friendships, um, still be in existence or um, was it just time for them to move on? And I remind myself there's a reason, a season and a lifetime for friendships and for um, where people play into your life. And so I don't know if I have the answers, but I'm like, okay, maybe it was just for a reason or maybe it was just for a season. And I think there's different seasons of life. Like even once I had kids, I was like, oh, we need to hang out with other families that have kids. Like we don't often hang out with a ton of single people because they're like, what do you mean you want to do dinner at 5.30? Like doesn't eight o'clock work? You're like, no, it doesn't. We need to get our kids to bed. So you just start like shifting your life. And I think there's just these different shifts. And I am really thankful because I have so many good people in my corner um, and have cultivated that community. And I'm not afraid to ask for help, but sometimes it is lonely when people don't get the vision. And for me, I think the loneliest part is, is when people question my vision or they don't see it or, and even Ronnie questions it. He, and he's the most supportive person. That's my husband. Um, but sometimes he's like, how in the ever loving like world are you gonna make that happen? And this is going to affect our family. Like he thinks about the more practical things where I'm just like, whoa, figure it out. Like we're gonna fly in the sky and fairy dust and rainbows will be shooting everywhere and he's that practical piece. And so I think the dreaming and the outrageous goals can be lonely because lots of people don't understand that piece of it. 
Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So when you're gauging relationships off piggybacking off of the loneliness idea, mm -hmm. um, you know, you're an entrepreneur, you have a million things going on. You have your foundation, you have your speaking, you have your writing, you have social, all these different things. And I'm probably forgetting things. Um, it, we have very limited time in a day. And that's, that's a known fact. 24 hours, seven days a week, mm -hmm. 168 you... hours in a work week. <laughs> that's more than I knew. Mm -hmm. um, how, do you, how do you choose where to spend your time that isn't going into those direct entrepreneurial endeavors? It's taken me a long time to get to this spot. I was laughing because I remember, I'm like, I'm like, oh, I have 47 emails. But when like my world really started to grow and blow up and you know, start the charity and start the business thing, I, had, I remember having 795 unread emails and just feeling buried and also saying yes to everything. And part of the yes was I wanted to, people to know that I cared and I was kind and I was likable and I was grateful, especially because so many people had extended kindness to our family when um, our son was diagnosed and we were in the fight for his life. But then I felt like I owed it back to people and so many people were so good. So I was like, okay, I have to be good to everyone. So if anyone has a request, I'm just going to do it. And it's probably taken me a solid five or six years where I'm okay now to say no. I'm okay now to um, like decline something. I'm okay to say, actually, I can't do this for free. Like my favorite line, especially when it's a larger company, is, is like, hey, I'm not in the position to help you make money. Well, I don't make any money for my own business. So thank you very much. Here's like my rates if you're interested in partnering together. So in that, a lot of that has to do with mindset and a lot of that has to do with like your internal gut and not feeling guilty or feeling like I owe people and learning to not care what they think about me. Like if I say no to you, hey, no, I'm not able to do it. You could probably think a million things, but in my heart of hearts, I'm saying no because either it's not aligned with my core values, no because I don't have the time or the capacity for it or no just because it's not the right fit. And I'm okay that you can think all these things, but I know the truth in my heart. And that took me a long time because I'm like, I want Aiden to like me. I want him to know that I'm great and amazing and kind and generous and all of those things because those are the core values. But I also have to know I can't live my life based on what strangers and random people will think about me. And that's when the peace started to come that like, I can't do it all. I only have 168 hours in a work week. How am I going to spend them? And... I sacrificed a lot of family time to grow the business and to grow our charity. And I still have to make those sacrifices, but I'm, I'm very clear on my why and I'm really content now when I say no to things. I know that it's like my kids that are gonna be the ones tucking in me and, and I'm gonna be tucking them in at night. It's my husband that I'm living a life with. We're the ones paying the bills. And it's okay that people don't understand my yeses and my noes. Um, you wish that they would, but I don't think that's always the case. You know, when you're making these these decisions, they become very complicated. Um, you know, and like you said, nobody nobody needs to know why you're saying yes or why you're saying no. Mm -hmm. uh, but you need to know that it's right for yourself because there's limited time. Mm -hmm. Is there a single mission that you always kind of go back to, or a single question that you're asking yourself that justifies your yes or your no? Does it go back to the goals and the dreams that like we're laying out and setting out for our family? Like, does it get us, does it move the needle? Does it benefit the family? Does it make sense? And I think those are just all the checkpoints. And what, it was so funny, I, I'm looking at my computer because I got this email and I had said a flippant yes to somebody. And then I was talking it out with my team and um, my sister-in-law who works with me, she's like, Jess, if it's not a hell yes, we know it's a no. 
and you know you don't want to disappoint this person or let them down or all of the things and so I knew in that decision I had rushed into it and so it's like before I just respond to someone like sometimes you know how you just want to get stuff done like yeah yeah, yeah it's on its way and you're like it's not ready or I'm not on my way or it's not ready but it's like slowing down and asking like does this move the needle does it benefit my family will it get us closer to our goals and dreams like does this work for this life by design like I look at my life by design because everything is choices that I'm making all day long just combined together to get you to where you want to go and when I look at it, it's like, oh no, actually it's going to take four or five hours. And I only have, once you start to look at your week in like 168 hours and I'll see pockets of space in my calendar. And so my brain will automatically go to, of course you have time, just do the thing. But it's never just that thing. And so I've started to pump the brakes and be like, am I okay to be away from my kids for this? Am I okay to pay for a sitter? Like when you're a parent, you have to be like, okay, am I going to fork out a hundred bucks to do the thing? Like, does it make sense that way? I'm okay that I'm not going to have a night with my husband or I'm not going to be able to take my kids to their practices. We start to like slow down and make calculated decisions and I've made a lot of dumb decisions really flippantly, really quickly, which is really great, but also can really hinder you. That's the power of when I'm starting to go, oh, this is when I'm in my flow. This is how we weed out the stuff that isn't serving us. When you're reading those things out, um, it, it becomes integral to, like we talked about this before, to, to surround yourself with the right people. Um, get the right people on the bus and, you know, at least at least that's a good starting point, right, for the future. Totally. Is there any one person that stands out from the rest that, you know, is integral to your success, whatever success is to you? I think it's an army of people. Because I'd love to say, like, there's just one single person, but I think that would be a bold lie <laughs> and not giving credit where credit is due. And I think it started with my parents and my grandparents about learning values and work ethic. And my parents have bailed me out more times than I care to admit. Thanks, Jim. Um, hey, Dad, here's what we're going through. I need your help. Whatever it is. Hey, Mom, you know, we're in a pinch. Can you help? Again, I think there's seasons of people that have gotten you there and seen you there. But I can't pinpoint it to one single thing. I think I've been really fortunate that God's put these incredible people in my life in the season that I am I am in to get me to where I need to go or to level up. I think the good thing is, is about also knowing when people, are they getting you there because they want something in return? Or are they just helping you because they just want to help you? And those are the people that give generously and expect nothing. Those are the people, if you can surround yourself with more of those types of people, and then you become that person. Like when I give someone my time, when I help somebody out, I want, I want to give generously with zero expectation because then I'm going to be filled up in my heart. And it was a true form of giving. And I think the people that have made impact in my life and have helped get me to where I am, they put my name forward in a room full of women. They, you know, held me accountable. They checked up on me. They've brought me meals. They've looked after my kids, whatever it is. And they didn't expect anything in return. Those are the difference makers. And I think when we can find more good people like that, that's what's led me to there. And I've been fortunate. There's so many, I could go through a list of great women, but there's a core group of volunteers for Love for Lewiston. You've seen them at all of the events. They expect nothing. They give hours upon hours. Um, Tamara um, Reimer and Victoria Kardash, they don't have social profiles. They don't want to be captured. They don't want to be in pictures. They don't do it for any other reason than they just believe in the mission. 
those without those two individuals I wouldn't be where I'm at um Justine my best friend who moved to London but she started the charity and built a website and like coded stuff at one in the morning when we were like trying to figure out what to do like there's all been all these pockets uh my girlfriend Melissa the first event that we had she came and she's like do you need help I was like yeah actually I do and she came I just met her and she came and sat at my kitchen table for eight hours she didn't leave and she was like okay we're just gonna get this done and she I'm like how do I thank you how do I repay you she's like you don't like I don't want anything I just I believe in what you're doing I want to help and so I'd say get more of those people in your life and those are be the people that push you towards where you want to go incredible mm-hmm. um your story has impacted hundreds of thousands if not millions of people that's generous of you but thank you I'll take it no, millions I, I let's go it. millions for sure okay I mean uh you know and you do so many things about around it it's your social media influence your book that you've written the the, spe- the speeches to talks do you talk about speeches talks keynotes, keynotes I think is like the professional term yeah yeah, yeah. Talks, um, whatever, yeah. <laughs> when I'm on stage with a microphone being very loud, yeah. Um, you know, everybody that's heard the story of the foundation that's donated, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do you ever still experience, or have you ever experienced imposter syndrome, regardless of all of the above? Oh, yeah. I mean, I sent an email. Like, here's the thing. I think people are just like, oh, it just comes easy to you. I'm still grinding. Like, I'm still fighting. Like, right before we turned on the cameras, like, you're like, I want to talk about things that we don't really talk about. And the, the scary part for me in sharing lots of my personal story is then people confuse it with the foundation. And I need to be really clear because I have a board of directors. They're fiscally responsible. They are, have committed to the growth and foundation. But I, when I published my book, I shared a little bit about not having a ton of money. I, I shared a little bit that people had done a GoFundMe um, campaign when Lewiston was sick. And then people scrutinized how we spent the money, how we used it for. And so when I talk about my own personal journey and our finances being a dumpster fire, some people get really alerted and concerned that then the foundation is a dumpster fire. And I was like, let me, I wish I had a board of directors for my own fucking business, but I don't. So it's scary for me to share that because it opens up a pathway and a doorway for people to rip you to shreds, to find fault in you, to be a keyboard warrior, to call you out. And I was like, dude, you want to look at any one of the foundation's financials? Like we can account for every penny. We're very proud of what we do. And so when I talk about my own business and being, you know, I mentioned I was like last week we had $2.79 in our, you know, family checking account and our bank account was in massive overdraw there was no more overdraw room like i literally was like god i have no idea how we're going to make the mortgage payment work and i had clients that need to pay but it's like net 30 and i'm like when's the net 30 damn it it's not going to be in time like this is the struggle and the pain and so for me it's always scary when i share stuff because i can get criticized about the foundation about not doing stuff but I hope that people can see it as two totally separate things. And yes, I lead both and I'm the face of both, but my personal business, I haven't had the mentors, the board of directors, um, and the strategy behind how we've done it. Whereas with my business, it often, the foundation usually takes priority in my business. Like my accountant sent me something in the month of June and July, and they're like, wow, your revenue has significantly dipped. My growth on social media stalled. Um, and those are things that we don't talk about. It's like we take a hit. My, I can't do what I do in our crazy event season in my business because I'm expending energy in a different way. 
um, and it doesn't benefit our family in the same way. I, I do get paid a part-time salary from the foundation, but for the first two years I didn't. We were just grinding and my husband was like, whoa, 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 we can't keep doing this and float the foundation, so we have to figure some things out. And we're constantly in a state of figuring it out. Um, but I just wanna encourage people that like, you have to have this relentless belief and I think in business as I continue to show up and do that, this imposter syndrome thing still does show up because even though you have the accolades, I mean, I have top 40 under 40 and some like humanitarian um, award of generosity. I, I won three awards in 2022, which I'm honored to do. And I was nominated for and was so grateful for because you have all the awards, it still doesn't mean that the doubts come in and the thoughts of like, who are you? Why would they want you? You're not good enough. Like these are all the things. And I, I cold called um, a big conference that's happening here in town and I still haven't heard back, but I, I didn't, I sat on it and finally I was like, just pull the freaking trigger and just send the note. And then I have to let go of all of the thoughts that don't serve me and just, this is where you're like, I'm gonna show up, I'm gonna ask for the opportunity and if they, say no, it doesn't mean anything about me. It doesn't mean that I suck. It doesn't mean that I'm not a good speaker. It doesn't mean that um, you know I'm not good enough for them. I just have to know that there's 8 billion people on the planet and to get opportunities, you gotta be bold and put yourself out there. But the imposter syndrome can really creep up for me. And I would almost say it's more so I get stuck in like, I care what other people think or what my friends think. So then I'm like, oh, I don't want them to think or oh, I shouldn't post that. Or like I won't share whatever I want to share and then that backfires and then I have this long list of stuff I haven't done. So I would say it's more so I, I don't get hung up too much in imposter syndrome. It still shows up. But more so in like I care what people think and I really have to focus on letting that go. And I always remind myself they're not paying your bills. They're not laying their head down at night. They're not taking care of your kids. So why the hell do I care what they think? But that's where I get stuck. You mentioned in there that there was a... Uh you know, there's people that criticize what you're doing, the keyboard warriors, uh, that sort of thing, you know, the ones that are, you know, chipping away at, at, at everything uh, for, for a negative, whatever, for a negative reason. I know, I'd like to be like, why? Like, do you get a thrill out of this? Like, yeah. how does ripping people to shreds benefit? Like, what is wrong in your life that you spend? Why do you even have the time to go do this to people? Like, when I see it happen online, I'm like, who even has the time to pull this shit together? Like, I'm like, imagine if you channel that into like volunteering at an organization. Like, the world would be a better place and we'd have a lot of problems fixed. But have that or enjoy your keyboard. That's it. Is Are there any that have, you know, chipped away at you a little more than, than the rest that kind of stick, you know, stick? It's often something that's just absolutely unbearable. <laughs> the ones that get me are the ones that... Um, were like, you use your dead son to benefit you financially. Um, that one stings. Because we have used our dead son to help grow our businesses financially. I mean, I speak on it. Like, it's what the story I share from stage. And so, and at first you're like, no, I don't use my dead son to, like, benefit financially. But, like, if you do the, the sense of it, it's like, yeah, I share the story. I get paid to share it and whatever. Um... That one stings because it's almost like they're like, oh, you wanted it to happen or look at how disgusting you are for, for doing it. Um, and Or like you use your dead son to benefit to get things, partnerships, whatever it is. 
And the reality is, is that we have built a life on sharing our story and being open on it. And there has been financial gains. There's also been a lot of financial heartache, like $2.79 in your bank account, where you're like, holy shit, how are we gonna do this? And I just have to realize that like, they'll never get it. And it's like, you wanna trade spots with me? Go for it. But I don't, just cause my son died doesn't mean I have to spend the rest of my life living in a pity party, feeling sorry for myself, working a nine to five job that I hate. Like I don't know what defined that. And I know lots of people that use their pain as rocket fuel to change the world. And so when they come at us, and to be honest, I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, um, I have the best followers, the most supportive people, but there is sometimes the odd time that somebody will, like I posted a link to my favorite suitcase and someone's like, well, that's so expensive, must be nice to be able to afford that. And I was just like, hey, I travel a ton, it has a lifetime warranty, Briggs and Riley, I am, if you ever wanna partner with me, I'm happy to. Best suitcase in the world, like once you buy one, you never have to buy another suitcase, whereas like I bought the cheap ones and you buy four of them because they crack and break. And you can take it really personally. And then I'm like, hey, I don't know what her financial situation is. And I, not everything I post will be for everyone. And I know that it won't make sense to them. So again, that goes back to checking in. Does this make sense? Is it aligned with who I am, my core values, our family's core values? And so it's really hard. But in the last seven, eight years of us sharing our family's journey, I've learned a lot of lessons, some really simply and some really hard falling on your face. Black Lives Matter, I got ripped to shreds um, for not doing enough. And as much as it sucked being called out, um, it helped me realign with my truth and what I know and that I will never be able to satisfy everyone on the other side of the screen. And I also have to be okay with that. Like even though people think they know my whole life because I share openly and very vulnerably, they don't know all of my life and I, I don't owe it to them to share it all. And so that's taught me a lot about checking in and being like, no, I'm good with what I did. It's okay that I'm not telling everyone on the other side, these are the seven things I did, look how great I am. I think we talk a lot about performative and you want, don't wanna, I don't ever wanna look like, I don't care, I'm not part of that. But the really tough moments of people ripping me to shreds, of people calling you out and saying things that aren't true has challenged me, hurt me, broke me, and then also helped me realign and check in knowing that like, I do need to get a thick skin if I am gonna be public about our life, if I am gonna share openly about that. And it's been hard, but I've learned a lot in the almost eight years that I've been at it. And for the most part, I literally have the most supportive, epic people. And I think it's because I put out good content. I wanna keep it, I wanna keep it real, but I, I wanna focus on the good stuff, not on the shit. Cause I think the more you focus on the shit, the more shit you get. The more problem you focus on, the more problem you get. The more possibility you focus, I mean, I say this in my keynote, the more of the awesome possibility thing. So I tend to lean that way, which I think serves me well in the long run, but there's still been some tough stuff. Do you ever regret anything that you've maybe put out on social or spoken about that maybe, you know, as you mentioned, you're, you're extremely vulnerable, everybody knows. Is there anything that you, you wish you maybe, and you don't have to identify it if there is something, but. I'm trying to think. If anything, I wish I had the guts to share the things that I want to share in the moment, but I chicken out to share because I'm worried what other people will think. So that would be my regret. That, and often the things I'm really scared to share are the things that resonate most with people, but then it's where you can have the most polar, 
opposite opinions. And so that's, I think, where it's really tough because you're like, oh, I don't want to, oh, I'm not, I don't want to stir up controversy or like whatever. So you try to keep it, play in the like the safe zone. So I think that would be my regret that I'm just like, it's okay. Like, I'll, I'll share this with body image. I think there's this thing I've recently lost like just around 30 pounds. I used medication to do it. There was this whole controversy. I wasn't disclaiming, disclosing enough of it, blah, blah, blah. And um, I don't want people to be overweight. And I don't share enough of that. I, I still love people that are overweight. I, I am not judging you. But like, I don't share enough about like, move your damn body. Like you have a choice. I had a choice. I didn't want to be that way anymore. And I think there's this piece where we want everybody to be beautiful and loved. And this controversy is, is like we're seeing more of in the media, which I absolutely love. But I also don't want people just to accept that they're going to be overweight and uncomfortable their whole life. Like I'm, and I'm kind of, I play it safe because I want people to feel good. The difference is, is I loved myself when I was 175 pounds and I love myself at 145 pounds. Um, and I think the messages can get confusing or people can read into it. And so unless you're explaining this constantly, you can, people will then start to either follow or unfollow or make judgment or whatever it is. But that's something that I wish I shared more of. And I'm like, if you have two legs, if you have arms, you should be moving your damn body and taking care of it because this is all you got. And I know hundreds of people living with their rare disease in a hospital that would give anything to have the body that you have and you're just taking it fucking for granted. Mm -hmm. So get moving. That gets me really fired up, as you can tell. <laughs> Woo! That's good. That's yeah. Good. Let's go! <laughs> um, how did the death of your son affect the relationship with your husband? Fuck. Oh. Um, I think it's so hard. And I think people, like, were... Lewis and Will passed seven years ago in November. And I think people just are like, it's seven years. Like, you should be fine. And um, after the golf tournament, you know, I remember I got home, I don't know, like 11.30 midnight. I'm driving home in this, like, U-Haul van filled with all the stuff. I never rarely listen to the radio. I turn on the radio. The mirrors are broken in this U-Haul. It's a total piece. And um, the song, Can't Stop the Feeling, comes on at, like, I don't know, 11.20 at night. I'm on Crow Child. I just start bawling because that's the song that I believe Lewiston shows up to encourage us and say, hey, mama, like, you got this. And I came home, and I crawled into bed. You're utterly exhausted. You're like, holy shit, like, I can't believe we just did that. Plus, we have this never-ending list of all the stuff we still have to do. And Ronnie just, like, wept like a baby. And so I think as a man, people don't see how much he hurts and grieves and still grieves. And... I don't like to almost go as deep as him, which is why I think I'm so focused on like, let's just do all this good stuff because I'm scared to go there because if I go too deep. And so for us in our marriage, like I was ready to be like, okay, let's go. I'll just get to bed. It's been a great day. And he needed to like process these huge feelings. And grief is just so different. You process it differently. You approach it differently. It comes at different times. And that has been the hardest part is understanding our styles of grief and when I need to just let him be and not try and fix him. Like if we just do these things and this will be great and let's host another fundraiser and we can help some more families or write another check and we'll do all these great things. And he wants to, he internalized and he wanted to just like hunger down as a family and keep our kids close. And I'm like, no, we need to use this story to change the world and help other people. And so there's not a right or wrong or a better 
or worse, it's just, okay, recognizing we both have a different style in that. And I think it's not getting mad at each other when we're not in the season that the partner is in. And so it's hard. Um, a lot of challenging conversations, um, being really intentional with our time. I, for the first two years, maybe three years, two and a half years, Ronnie had a ton of resentment towards the foundation because um, he was like, it's just taking you away from Swayze and I. But it was what I needed to do to heal, what I needed to do to work through my grief. But it wasn't what he needed to do. So I was building up resentment because he wasn't supportive. He wasn't, you know, all in and helping with the emails and doing all that stuff. And so I would say it stuck a wedge in us. And thank God for counseling and coaching and, you know, us taking care of ourselves mentally and physically. Like there's been so much learning of, okay, this is what you mean. This is what I mean. Um, but it's been hard. I believe our marriage is better for it but it has been a really hard journey to get there. Speaking specifically to social, and we've kind of hinted at this, the, our entire conversation, but um, you know, you share everything, right? What people think is everything, yes. Interesting, Explore, explain that to me. I don't share everything online. And I, I heard this rule film, I was at a conference, and the, you know, someone says, you know, you share so much, you share it all. And the lady said, one of the things that I, I don't share is I often won't share when a scab when a wound, sorry, when a wound is open and still oozing. I mean, disgusting analogy, <laughs> whatever you're visualizing right now. But she said, I'll share the experience once it's scabbed over, once it's kind of healed. And I know that because there's some things that when you're in it, it's not a powerful tool to share. I think there's some things that you can share, but when we're struggling, like Ronnie and I struggled so much last fall. I didn't share that. I now share it from the stage because I've turned into a really funny story and we didn't talk to each other for two to three weeks and like we had to have this come to Jesus conversation. My parents had to, you know, help us like, like mediate through it. We had to book therapy and do all of it. I didn't share it and be like, hey guys, Ronnie and I are still fighting. We haven't talked for two weeks and we're not touching each other in bed. Like those are the things I think people just make assumptions that you share it all and you don't. Like I have ADHD, I've started sharing it openly probably the last six months now, but I didn't share it online for at least a year. I was sorting out medication, I was trying to figure it out. I now think I'm dyslexic, I don't, I've never shared that before and I'm like trying to figure that one out, like why I struggle to learn and read and write. And it's like, I think sometimes as somebody that wants to be open and share because I think there's power in it, there's also part of like my brain has to process and understand it. But I think it's very easy to make the assumption, like make the assumption that I have it all together because I have a white kitchen and, you know, I have this beautiful family and whatever else. But some days I'm just holding on with a hope and a prayer and a Jesus take the wheel. So, yeah, I, we do not share everything. <laughs> it's like they're 60 second, they used to be 15 second clips, but they're 60 second lines. Like, I mean, do the math in that. There's a lot of... I maybe share, let's say on a heavy day, maybe share 15 minutes of my life. 15 minutes out of 24 hours, like think about that. There's a lot that's not shared. And I love sharing what we do, but I also hope that that helps people understand that perspective of like, hmm, I bet you there's a lot more going on behind the screen than I even know. My mental health journey, you know, I'm a high energy, go, go, go. But I was battling mentally this spring. Like I literally went into the doctor and I was like, my brain's fucked. I'm fucked. This is fucked. I, I'm fucked. Help, unfuck me. Like 
the dark thoughts, the consuming, I didn't share that while I was going through it because I was scared. I was trying to figure it out. And I don't need random strangers feeding into me. And I also wanted to allow myself this space to process, which I think is a really important thing to do. Makes sense. Okay. Um, entrepreneurship, I've heard described as the constant pursuit of discomfort. Yes. Would you agree with that? A thousand percent. Because you're always working on something new or figuring it out. As somebody who's experienced a lot of discomfort throughout their life, mm -hmm. why do you choose to put yourself through that continually? Continuously pursue discomfort. The discomfort is where the best things have happened. Like our brain scientifically is wired to keep us safe. But like safe, I don't know if the word safe and joyful like live in the same sentence. And I use the word joy because that is my life mission. Help other people bring more joy. Like we could bring joy to my son's death. You can bring joy to any damn circumstance. Like you want to be stuck in an elevator? I'll make it the best damn joyful experience you ever did see. I believe that. Yeah, oh, we'll have a party. <clears throat> I don't know if joy and safety, joy and comfort exist. Like I've never known someone to be like, I'm so comfortable and joyful. Like people, you do the scary thing and that's where the joy is. You try something new, you follow through on the nudge on your heart, the crazy idea. Like that's when I think you spark something in your brain where you're like, oh, we're gonna do this and you do it and it's like wild and you don't have a guaranteed outcome. And you're like, holy shit, that was amazing. Like, oh my gosh, these people actually want me to speak at their event. Okay, let's go. Like I send the scary email and you can tell yourself a million different things. I think comfort will keep you safe and there's nothing wrong with being safe. But I think if you want a really full, abundant life, get prepared to be uncomfortable, get prepared to do new things, get prepared for it not just to be cookie cutter. You have a beautiful family, mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, tons of things that you do that take you away from, you know, other aspects of your life. Mm -hmm. How do you manage everything? And, you know, if work-life balance means anything to you? Doesn't. Explain, doesn't. talk to me about that. I hate when people say, like, how do you do it all, like, how do you achieve balance? And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, stop trying to achieve balance. I explain this because I get, I do get asked this question often because I think so many people are trying to chase this balance, mm -hmm. this place of peace. But what I re realized when I was trying to chase like, okay, perfect amount of time with my kids, perfect amount of time with my husband, perfect amount of time my business is thriving, perfect amount of time with the foundation, perfect, like, it was just, I, it was absolutely an impossible feat and I would challenge anyone to the death that I think that you can just have it all, perfect time slot, perfect time slot, check it off, check it off, check it off. And so what I've learned is that there's seasons and rhythms of life. And so we call it Lewiston season and I'll use this as an example. Um, it gets really intense, lots of events. Like we, my house is not perfectly curated. It isn't a place of zen, like, oh man. And I believe in outer order, inner calm. Like you come to my house, everyone's like, wow, I feel so welcome, I love it here. Like you've been here lots. Um, but like during that season, it's a wild mess and I can't have the perfect balance of like, we have home cooked meals every night and every I get to every workout and I'm taking my husband on a date night a week and blah, 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 like in freaking possible. And so when you picture a teeter totter and you like this metal contraption and this like old two by six board that's like, when you get the perfect balance on a teeter totter, you are sitting here and whatever else is sitting on that side. And so it's balanced. 
but that means you have no room to do anything else. Nothing can come at you because you're holding this position as you balance, like don't throw me another ball, don't give me another opportunity, don't do something fun with my kids. And so I'm like, stop trying to do the balance thing and like embrace these rhythms and seasons. So for summer, I was like, I'm just focused on my kids. We're doing the memories. We're going the swimming. I'm not wearing as much makeup. My hair is a disaster because I'm swimming and, you know, we're outside in the sun and we're playing. And then there's seasons now where I'm like, okay, I'm in a grind for my business. I'm grinding. I'm full days. It means I don't, I'm not the perfect mom that always is picking up her kids from, you know, school and I'm at every pick up and drop off because I believe... I haven't, I don't have a business that that is that successful that I work three hours a day like you see online. I made um, $45,000, swipe up here or click the link in my bio to learn how you too can make $45,000 a week. And I was like, sure Susan, tell me how, tell me how. And she's like, I only work the three hours. Like that's just not real life. And if it is for you, amazing, kudos. Um, figure out to spread that knowledge with more people, but I just am embracing the seasons. This is where I grind really hard. This is where I work really hard. So I ask for help. I outsource. I invest in the things that I know I need to do that make me a better version of myself. My health, non-negotiables. I don't miss my workouts. I get my green juices in. And I love French fries, so it's not, I mean, call it balance, but you know what I mean? It's like 80-20. It's like you do the things. And so I treat myself and I show up the way that I want to be in five years. So it means buying a $12 green juice, which is maybe why I have $2.79 in my freaking <laughs> bank account. I don't know. But those are the things I focus on. And so I'd say let go of balance, embrace the rhythm, embrace the season that you're in. And what season is that for you? I don't know. I'm in a season of like, okay, I'm going really hard. I'm really focused on all the things. And it's okay that I'm not here for every meal. It's okay that I'm traveling for work. It's okay that I'm not tucking my kids in every night. That doesn't make me a bad mom. It doesn't make me a bad wife. My struggle, and I think so many people struggle is, is like, I just want to be where my feet are. So I want to be present. So if I am with my kids, I shouldn't be on my phone doing the things and being distracted. Like I want to be able to do that. And I think that helps create the peace that many people are seeking out. When you're trying to still do it all and you're doing it all half-ass, that's I think where people get frustrated and discouraged and fall off the wagon. As somebody who you know goes hard all the time in every aspect of your life, mm -hmm. um, a lot of people, you know, look for that. What, what does that recharge look like? Recharge the batteries, you know, your weekends or your evenings or whatever the case may be. But I feel like um, for those of us who, who don't necessarily stop, even in our personal lives, it all kind of blends together a little bit. Mm -hmm. That means you're going to crash. Mm -hmm. And you crash often. Mm -hmm. What do crashes look like for you? I usually get really, like everyone jokes, like I'm really, I'm somebody really good that like I won't get sick often. Um, but then when I do, like I can weather a cold and whatever, but like when my body is like tapped out, it's like on the verge of death, like do you take me to the hospital? Like that, my, that's my body's way of saying like holy shit, pump the brakes, like you got to do, and like it means I won't move, I can't get out of bed, like I'm, and mentally it really messes me up. I would say that my crashes come less often because I'm, I'm starting to recognize, whoa, 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 what do I need? And making sure that I'm not overextending myself. So again, that's going back to like powerful yeses, making sure it aligns with my values, not just trying to do everything to please everybody. But when I do um, crash, it, it can be pretty significant. I feel like I've gotten better at mitigating those and stopping before it gets to that point. And I'd say that's only been in the last year or two. 
That's good. It's impressive. Um, repetition often results in numbness. Mm-hmm. Your, your story is one of deep pain and hurt. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and you express that, uh, you know, da- daily, maybe not daily. That's not the right thing to say, but you're telling your story mm-hmm. on, on a, a significant, like every, consistently, really, yes. right? Yeah. Um, and, and often when that happens, people become numb to not, nece- not necessarily the, the audience, but you, yourself. Mm-hmm. I started to feel like sometimes I'm going numb or if I'm in a group of people where I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable, often I get asked, oh, how many kids do you have? And I always respond with three kids. And so I'll just fly by. I'm like, oh, yeah, one of our kids died of rare genetic disease. And so obviously you only see two of my children. My third son is in heaven. Um, but it's really cool. We have a charity foundation. And I'll say it like that. So it's just out and in there because I don't want, oh, I don't want you to cry and feel uncomfortable. And it helps me. I'm like, I don't press into the discomfort of them or myself being like, this fucking sucks. I don't like, I, when I look at our family photos and I just post a family photo, it's like a big cardboard cutout of our son. And I don't get to have pictures of him growing up or seeing that. And um, even I was at my daughter's school and I saw a little seven-year-old boy. And every time I see a kid that should be the age of, of Lewiston I'm just like it's like a I stab to the heart but I often will fly through it when I'm on stage I've learned that I don't need to fly through it and I don't need to apologize that I still cry for it I don't need to be ashamed about it but I find myself doing that in casual conversations where it's like the you know social conversations and light talk where you're not going deep with people and I find I'll breeze through with them because it most people are uncomfortable when you talk about death and then they don't know how to respond and so I find myself dampening or just kind of brushing over the story so I don't go into an emotional state. Would you say that you have an automated response to those situations? Yeah pretty canned. I even will crack a joke and some people laugh or some people like oh my gosh like totally taken back like I'm always like oh your kids are fine with me I've only had one kid die on my watch I think it's kind of funny but most people don't I was like it's a joke like my kid had a rare genetic disease and for some people they might not find humor in that like you know again we talked about comedians like well they have a career because you're always going to offend somebody right but um yeah I, I would say I have a canned response especially if I get frustrated when people don't acknowledge that like you're like I just said my kid died and you were like now you're talking about the weather like were you listening so I try it's taught me to be a good listener and to acknowledge when people are sharing pain or vulnerability or something sad and tough you don't have to have the right words I think we all just want to be acknowledged mm-hmm. yeah what's the biggest uh, biggest mistake you've ever made in your own eyes you know, we've talked about a couple of things, um, but I, I feel like those might be brought on by, you know, by an external opinion. Is there anything that you feel like you've made a mistake in? I make mistakes every friggin' day. I would say I've made a lot of mistakes. I don't think I can narrow it down to one. I think a few things that pop up for me is seeking external validation. Um, like I, I get dopamine hits from that. So seeking external validation and that works in the ways of like, I only want to post stuff that's comfortable that everyone will love. I don't want to post the uncomfortable stuff. And um, I think not choosing to always prioritize my marriage, like at the cost of our business and 
like really truly understanding what my husband needs for us. Like at the end of this, all of this is great and nice and whatever, but like I, I'm working towards, you know, 50 years of marriage with my partner sitting on our porch facing west and being like, we done good. And I want to do that with him by my side. And my therapist had told me this, which was really helpful. She goes, you can run faster on your own. You can run further with other people. And I'm sure it's a quote from somebody, but I needed to hear that because I was like, oh, he's weighing me down. He's not moving fast enough. He doesn't like, you know, and it was like, yeah, you can probably go, you know, faster. However, and I sometimes have those thoughts about my kids. Like, oh, if I wasn't a mom, I'm like, what am I doing? Like, there's moments where you're like, gosh, this is so hard. If I didn't have to do this, if I could work, like I'm a workaholic, I could work some nights till one in the morning when the ideas get flowing and you're pumped. And then it's like, oh, but I got to cook my kids dinner and I'm going to give them a bath. And so I can catch myself being like, oh, if I didn't have to do this. Um, so those are the mistakes of just like learning how to reframe that. In my business, I would say it's running so fast and not slowing down to make calculated decisions and slowing down to understand my numbers. Like I've always just figured it out and I always will just figure it out. But I think there's power in being a business owner and truly understanding like what actually makes sense. What do you need to charge? Not just like flippantly, okay, I think we're good. Okay, we'll figure it out. Like, no, 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 no slow down, build the foundation, get stuff in alignment, understand that. And that's now a huge piece for me of going, okay, is this viable? Is this going to work? Is this sustainable? Those are where I would say I've made some big mistakes, not making family a priority, not slowing down and working through the numbers. I don't like, I get overwhelmed by it. So I just would tend to ignore it. And I'm having to learn to ask for help admitting like, oh, I'm really not good at this. Who can I ask for help or who can I pay and outsource so that I can do this the right way. This will sound like a cliche question. I know we've been avoiding those, but mm -hmm. I'm curious. Um, as entrepreneurs, our definition of success is always a moving target. You know, it's not you reach this and it's going to be done. And we, it's we know. never enough, <laughs> never ever. Like that song from Greatest Showman always comes on when you like you hit the thing and then you're like never enough because you're always wanting more. That's exactly. why you keep going. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your what's your next target? What's the next thing? I want to be a New York Times bestseller. I want, like, my next big thing, and I was actually thinking about this last night. I was like, when I get booked to go to Dubai, like, that's when I, I'm going to know I've made it. And I'm flying in a freaking pod, and I'm charging full rate, and, like, you know what I mean? Um, I'm making this for my keynote. Like, those are, are the things that I I've have as big North Stars in my world of the next thing that I'm driving for. And I think that what makes me great, it also is very exhausting for my partner when he's like, you're all, it's never enough. And that was his fear in marrying me was he's like, you're never satisfied. And so I have to be really careful. Like I dreamed of this life of living in this neighborhood of this home. And now you're like on to the next. I'm like, when we build our dream home and I have two washers and two dryers and two dishwashers. And my husband's like, whoa knowing how my brain is wired i am adhd so my brain is always looking for dopamine hits the way i find dopamine hits is by dreaming is by doing the next thing so i have to recognize like oh like i'm living what i what i want i mean you're in it too right you're like i dreamed of this day when i'd have a team and great people like cam and we're going to do the things and we're starting this thing like i want to do a podcast i have a dream of one day coming out with a movie about mine and ronnie's love story like the list is never ending but i'm learning to also being like I'm living what I dreamed of. 
I'm living what I dreamed of. So this is like the ebb and flow. Um, like I hope the next time we're talking, I'm like, Aiden, and I got a publishing deal and I have a book coming out and you need to have me on your podcast so we can promote it and sell all the books and do all the things. Um, and that dream has been three, four, five years in the making. Like I've had 10, 12 publishers be like, no, you don't have a big enough audience. No, you're like a white suburban mom. Like we're not publishing you. And I'm choosing to still have these big dreams and not let go. So there will always be goals and dreams, but I'm also learning how to just like find joy in this right now. It's an interesting, interesting concept that uh, a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs avoid having entrepreneur partners uh, after knowing what that looks like in the first in the first kind of experience together, you know? I would not recommend it, <laughs> it's especially during a global pandemic. It's so interesting. So like yeah, I, there's, I have a, um, somebody I, I very much look up to and had a really good conversation that stood out about eight years ago, if not more. Okay. Um, that was like, don't, I, I was always envious of his relationship. I said, it's just, this is so cool that you have, you know, your partner is just as driven as you are. Mm. Um, and he was like, you know, it's, it's actually not. It's really tough because sometimes I go home and I just want to unwind and we can't do that together because there's always conflicting schedules, conflicting things going on. Mm -hmm. Do you experience that? I know we haven't talked a ton about your husband, Ronnie. Uh, we've kind of hinted that a little bit, but you're both entrepreneurs. In, in, mm -hmm. Do you ever experience that? What does that look like? How do you manage that? So first off, I am married to Hot Ronnie. We've called him Ronnie, but he's affectionately on my social media channels. And that is his nickname was Hot Ronnie. He is super hot. I always, and I mean, people see a picture and they're like, oh yeah, he is really hot. Like, I, that's one of my favorite messages. People are like, I saw Hot Ronnie today, he's so hot. And I'm like, yes, he is. And he's kind and amazing and the best dad and an incredible husband. Um, it is really hard, especially like with what fills up my cup is completely different than what fills up his cup. And I would say we both have been in this like grind, like we're waiting for like, okay, like when it's not gonna be like, holy, how are we gonna, okay, we're just, and you know, we, we have big plans and dreams and we thought they'd happen like right around 2020 and then a global pandemic shut everything down, probably derailed our plans by two to three, maybe even four years. And that has been really hard. It's been hard for me not to build up resentment too of like, well, how come it hasn't happened yet? Like, when is it gonna be your turn? And so he's really good at shutting it down and focusing on our kids. And I build up resentment to him that he's so good at shutting it off and just being present and focused. And I would say, I'm not good at that. And that probably pertains a little bit to my ADHD where I'm like, bing, 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 bing. And also of just having the tools to like shut it down and just be in it. And when we're driving, like my worst habit is, is he drives everywhere. I love that he drives, but I'll just be on my phone, texting, emailing, social media, texting, emailing, social media. And I have to catch myself, stop, grab his hand, hold it, and then an idea will come and I'll go right back. And then like you go texting, emailing, bing, bing, bing. I got to text this person. I forgot to do this. Don't want to forget that. And then so like being present in that. So it is, I would say, very challenging because we have very different schedules and our businesses are never done. Like when we were, we have Chachi's and DeVille and Hula and Analog and um, we don't own them with a franchisor, but when we started, when Ronnie started, he worked six, seven days a week, 12 hour days. I had to be really careful not to be resentful, but I'm like, okay, we're building a life together. And so that's what it brings me back and focuses me. And I just have to focus on, it's not always going to be this wind down and perfect time and whatever, but when I do make the intention that I'm all in and present, and that seems to have helped us 
but it is very hard in a couple where you're both entrepreneurs constantly dealing with the stress of can we pay the bills what's the next business move who do i need to have a call with where did i miss an email because you're not stuck in a corporation where it's like oh i thought tara was going to take care of that oh okay like oh my, we have a constant paycheck so that's that's the challenge for sure uh are you familiar with the concept of superpower or genius I have superpower, yeah, it's on my ADHD planner. ADHD is my superpower. Explore that, what does that mean? I believe my ADHD, the way I'm wired, um, how I was created, the way that I'm growing my mindset, the things that I'm doing to better myself mentally, physically, all of it, um, that is my superpower. So I started geeking out about like neuroscience and how the brain works because people are like, oh, they can never change. And it's like, yeah, actually you can. You can change the wiring to your brain. You can, you know, learn new skills, become better, become more efficient, overcome, you know, fear, anxiety, whatever it is. But it takes practice. And I think the best part about my ADHD is I stopped looking at, at it as something that was holding me back. And for a long time I did. Like I was like, uh, if I didn't have this, then all these things would be better. But now I'm like, no, use your ADHD as your superpower. Like this is the thing that helps me think differently, approach problems differently. Like you want a problem solved, I'm your girl. Like I don't need to know your industry. I don't need to know about the product line. I'll ask all these questions because I'm really inquisitive and curious. And I will come up with a solution that I believe people that have PhDs and whatever wouldn't even think of because I'm so curious and I'm wired so differently that I'll approach the problem from a totally different mindset that's probably unconventional um, and not your typical way of doing it. And that's what makes me amazing. That's what sets me apart. That's my superpower. Going back to one of the the very first things we talked about was early, early, early Jessica Jansen life. Yes. Um, when you were, you know, you were experiencing these hardships earlier on in your life, the, the bullying, the, the farm girl lifestyle, all these different things. Um, did you ever envision what what your life like would be like today? Mm -hmm. Every day on the farm, every day. I thought I was going to be a famous movie star, if I'm being honest. Like I was involved in acting and I was really theatrical, but I, you know, I think we lived fairly independently. Like we weren't, my parents weren't helicopter parents. Like it was like, go drive the truck to this field and take this to your dad. Or you're responsible for cooking dinner at the age of eight or nine or whatever it was. And, you know, very early on you learned stuff that most, I would say study children probably weren't privy to because that's just how you have to do it on a farm. And I would play out these games and this imagination that I was going to be this famous Hollywood actress and I had all these stories and I would do interviews and all of these things. And so I think there's a part of me that had played out certain parts of my life or dreamt it. I mean, the crazy thing is, is that when I graduated high school, there was no such thing as social media and Instagram. I think like MSN was just becoming a thing. Yeah. Was that instant messaging? Was it yeah. called MSN? It was called MSN, yeah. yeah. Like where you could have a conversation with somebody or be in a chat room or something like that. And then Facebook. But like what I'm doing today, I didn't even know was possible when I graduated or when people are like, what do you want to do with your life? And that's something I'm most passionate about. I have this other crazy wild dream that one day I'm going to come up with this like conference that's for, you know, um, kids in high school that shows them all of these other opportunities that are not your traditional, I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm an accountant. I think I want them to still know about all that stuff and the cool roles that accountants and lawyers and doctors do. But like, let's talk more about these things that are just coming up that 
were not a thing that you don't go to school for that you can create or you can go to school for and this is how it's going to help you or what you can build with it because it's like there is endless possibility and I don't think I knew how cool it would be that like I can be Instagram famous. I mean, people say that, they're like, yo, you're Instagram famous, whatever it is. I, I'm Jessica and I have a social media channel and you can choose to follow me or not. But it's crazy how you can have reach and how opportunities can come because of that. And so when I was a little girl, I play out these scenarios, but it was more so that I was a famous actress from Hollywood. Um, that is not my, my case, but we did produce a documentary that won 2022 Okotoks Bus Film Festival. So it's there incredible. is that, yeah. yeah. Do you ever take time to to kind of reflect and realize not only how far you've come, but also recognize the positive impact that you have on those around you? Mm-hmm. I would say probably more often than not. Like I wake up in a state of gratitude. Like even before I get out of bed, I'm like, God, thank you so much that I have legs and arms and a healthy body because I know it'll change like that and I don't want to regret not utilizing it or taking it for granted or um, not utilizing it to its fullest. And so part of my practice is just like being grateful for some of the smallest things like the coffee that we drink. Like I'm thankful for those mugs. Coffee tastes better out of them, seems so silly, to the things of like, holy shit, I worked four years on a project to get newborn screening implemented and I grew up with this piece of like being humble and like, um, like let other people be included. And also I'm in a st- time where it's like, no, I'm gonna raise my hand. I was at the damn meetings. I put in a lot of freaking hours that a lot of other people didn't see, didn't know about. And I am gonna be really proud about it. What I know to be true is it's never just me. There is a team, like you said, is there one single person? And I could list so many amazing people that have lifted me up and held me accountable. But I also think, especially for women, you might not struggle with this, maybe you do, but I want to be bold in a room to say like, this is what I've accomplished. I have worked really hard and be okay with it. And again, it's not because I'm bragging, it's because I wanna help other women to learn to celebrate their successes and to like step into their power so they can change the damn world. Male, female, whatever you identify as, I want, if I can do it, some simple farm girl that wasn't gifted a trust fund and every opportunity and have all the connections. Like somebody, I read my good Goodreads reviews. I was at the beach with my parents and um, we were talking about Goodreads. And I was like, oh, right, Goodreads. And so we started reading these reviews and I read one and it's like, Jessica is this white privileged girl who's had everything handed to her and the only reason why she's successful is because she knows wealthy people or something like that. I was like, <clears throat> well, Sharon, um, if you read the damn book, you know I only had three hundred dollars. My dad, my dad started his business from nothing, and there was years I remember when we got bed sheets for Christmas, and he worked two jobs. He trucked all winter to make it happen. Like my dad just wasn't gifted a legacy farm of a hundred years. We weren't just gifted all of this money, inheritance, and just easy street. I've worked really hard and I've worked hard to be in a room with wealthy people that will make a difference or want to write a check and it didn't come to, just didn't happen naturally. I don't even know what question we're on and why I'm going off on this tangent, but I'm ripping shreds here, sorry. All of that being said, um, I, I actually feel I'm pretty good at it. And like, 
I will celebrate the moments and I will do the things. And I believe I do that because A, like I mentioned earlier, I want other women to know that it's okay to stand in the room. And it's not about bragging, but it's about paving um, or blazing a trail for somebody else to come alongside and to give them permission to do the thing. And the other thing is, is that um, when you, when death is knocking at your door, you will live differently. And um, I tell everybody this, I said the death of my son was one of the best things that happened for me because it woke me the fuck up. Like I stopped coasting. That's where I started taking risks. That's where I didn't stay comfortable anymore. That's where my bold personality and how I approach things. And you know, I go into a room and I'm just out there and it's okay that I'm not for everybody, but I don't want to dim my light just so that some other people in the room can feel comfortable. Um, I don't have to be for everybody, but I don't want to change who I am so that people are comfortable. I want to be who I am. And hopefully that gives them the permission to be really damn comfortable in who they are. And so celebrate the moments, pop the confetti cannons, do the things. We won't host a party unless they let us pop confetti cannons, which has made it very challenging to find venues, but celebrate the moments, big or small. It's important. Jess, thank you very much. You're welcome. Appreciate that. Thanks for having me. I'll hug you. I didn't make you cry though. (laughs) <laughs> so, whoo! <laughs> no, thank you. That was that was incredible. Appreciate yeah. appreciate you taking the time Ooh, and sharing those Thanks things. Thanks for asking.